If you will, take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're a member of Gray Road, I do want to mention one more thing that is in the bulletin, and that is that two weeks from today, immediately following the service, there will be uh, a brief members meeting. So uh, mark your calendar um, and, and, and pray toward that end. Now, we have been in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and in planning it, I saw very quickly we're going to be well into 2025 before we actually get through with the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, I decided with the elders' blessing to uh, have some breaks along the way. Luke basically comes in four chapters, if you will, four acts, and the temptation of Jesus, which we looked at last week, is the last piece of that first act before Jesus launches into His public ministry. And so, from now until Easter, we're going to be here in Ephesians 4 to 6 in just a brief series we're calling Worthy of the Calling. We're not going to look at every verse in these chapters, but we're going to look at a selection of texts, and I want to tell you why. Now, the second of the book of Ephesians speaks to what it means to live as a Christian. And so there is a reason why we are doing this series at this time. The first reason is that in reality our world calls on us and even at times tries to force us to conform ourselves to its way of thinking, to its way of living. But the Christian life must be determined by Christ and not the world. So it's good for all of us to be reminded how it is we are called to live. The second reason we're doing this is that we are planting a church in Bargersville. We're sending Stephen and his family and other folks who have not been formally identified yet to Bargersville. I trust that several of you are still seriously considering whether you ought to be part of that church plant. And to be part of a church plant, you really have to be committed to showing up, sitting in a seat, and giving. And so we feel like Ephesians 4 to 6, as it were, gives a good kind of job description for those who will go to plant this church. The third reason why we are doing this series is for those of us who are left behind, who don't, uh, I don't mean that in rapture terms, you understand that. I, I just mean those of us who remain at Gray Road and do not go to Bargersville, um, we need to be praying for those who are there. And actually, Ephesians 4 to 6 builds a good kind of prayer list for all those who go. And so for those reasons, we're going to look at these four chapters. And what I want to do this morning is we're just going to look at the first six verses of chapter 4. Let's read them. Uh, if you are using a pew Bible, it's on page 977 of that Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You will draw near to us as we draw near to You. Would You open our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive these words as they are, as Your words, as words of life, as words that carry Your authority and Your hope and Your help, words that are meant to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness. Do your work, Lord, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I urge you to walk. Walking is an image that is all over the New Testament. All over the New Testament. We are told in other places that Christians walk in the light that we walk in newness of life, that we walk in the Spirit, walk in love, walk by faith, walk in wisdom, walk in the truth. The image of walking pictures all of life. Now, of course, we live in a day uh, where walking is primarily seen as uh, supplemental rather than fundamental, like it's something you do in order to get some exercise a few times a week. I'm going to go on a walk. Uh, apart from that, we tend to try to avoid walking, don't we? I mean, you don't, have to, you, don't know, you don't have to get up to actually change a channel anymore on a television. Uh, I don't know if there's a YouTube video that explains what that means, kids, but uh, that's what we used to have to do. Um, and so... Uh, but you don't do that anymore. You have a remote. In fact, you get quite annoyed when the remote is not where it's supposed to be, and you get, have to get up and walk around in order to find the remote that's supposed to save you from walking. We don't walk through the house trying to find someone. We text them. We don't walk into the grocery store. We sit at the curbside pickup. We don't walk and push and shove our way through Black Friday. We do all our shopping on our phone, in our pajamas, on our couch. So, it's more seen as supplemental, but the reality is, is that walking is fundamental. I mean, all of us remember, <coughs> whether it was our child or a grandchild or somebody else's child, celebrating the fact that this child could finally walk. And we walk as a way of life. So when Paul describes the Christian life as a walk, what he's saying is the Christian life is a way of life. A life of walking is a way of life. Being a Christian isn't an add-on. It's not like an app on your phone. It is walking is the operating system of the Christian life. It is all the time. It's everywhere. It affects everything. And so what he's telling us here is to live in a way that reflects God's call of salvation, that that's what we're to do. And I want us to notice three things about this walk this morning. The first is that the walk is required by God. It is required by God. Now, that doesn't take much imagination. Once you, all you have to do is read it, right? He says, I urge you to walk. 
Now, you who are Greek scholars will be quick to raise your hand and say, but Toby, there's technically no imperative in this first verse. Well, yes, 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 I know, I know. But still, it carries the weight of a command. You see, Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ, sent by Jesus Christ, given authority by Jesus Christ to speak to the church of Jesus Christ. If Paul were to show up this morning and ask for the pulpit and say something, it, we wouldn't just say, you know what, Paul, we'll take that under consideration. We'll send that to a committee and decide if we're going to do that. We'll pray about it. No, if Paul stands up and says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, this much you can know, especially since it is written down for us, it carries the authority of Jesus Christ. Walking as a Christian is not optional. It's not a suggestion. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the call because the gospel that we have received changes the way that we live. That is what lies behind this. The gospel is not a message of information, but it is a work of transformation. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The, the message of the gospel, I mean, when the Christian message is not just some nice pleasantries about God, you understand. It doesn't come along to affirm who we are and where we are and what we do. The gospel comes along and says something is actually fundamentally wrong with all of humanity. And the gospel calls us. It is a summons. It is God's call out of an old life and into a new life. Now, we see this already just in Ephesians. Just let your eyes glance backward to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Notice what Paul writes. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was the old way of life. That is the way of life that all of us are born walking in. When we learn to walk as human beings, I don't mean physically, I just mean when, we, when we're walking, when we're living, when we're making decisions, this is the walk that we're walking. We're walking in trespasses and in sins. This is the way of life. But then, if you just go down to verse 10, you'll see that as a result of God's gracious salvation, look what changes. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's a whole new walk. We are called out of one way of life into another way. In other places... We are called out of darkness and into life, out of slavery to sin and into freedom, out of the orphanage of sin and into the family of God. We are called out of death into life. This is a radical call, a radical call. As a hospice chaplain, I was... I was there many times when a person stepped from time into eternity, and there is a visible change in the countenance when you go from life to death. It is a radical change. If you've ever been 
just to a funeral with, of a friend or a loved one or whatever, and, and, and the casket is open, you look, and they may look very nice, and, and the funeral home has done, you know, a great job with this or that, but it doesn't really look like them. Something is radically different. If not in the visibility, in the mobility, right? There, it, it is a radical change from life to death, and how much radic more radical is it when we go from death to life? It is an incredible change. The call of God, the salvation of God, bringing us out of death into life is a radical change, and that is why Paul urges them to walk so that every step of every day would reflect the reality that we've been called to a new life, that wherever our feet take us, as it were, we go there knowing Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of that place, and He's Lord of me, and He's called me, and I am His, so that my thoughts and my words and my responses and my motivations, my actions and my desires should reflect that I belong to Him step by step through all of life. Now, if you just take one of those, our words should reflect that reality. What that does not mean is that all of our words every day will be about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? We, we do jobs. We place orders. We do all kinds of things. Now, most of us would probably do well to speak more about the Lord Jesus on a daily basis. But what this means is that my words fall under His Lordship, that there are things I will not say. There are things I can say, and there are things I must say for the sake of Jesus Christ. Step by step, word by word, thought by thought, day by day, one foot in front of the other, walking a new way of life, it is required. But it's not just required of the Ephesians. When you start reading the rest of your New Testament, you begin to realize this is for all Christians, actually. He tells the Romans... We walk in newness of life. He prays for the Colossian Christians that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And then He tells them, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And He reminds the Thessalonians that we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And he tells the Philippians, only let your manner of life, that's the idea of walking, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But it's not just a hobby horse for Paul because John says the same thing. He says, whoever says that they abide in Him should walk as Jesus walked. So this is actually not just for the Ephesians. It's not just for all those Christians back in the New Testament. It's for Christians today. It's for you and it's for me. So are you walking this way? Are you seeking to obey the call to walk in a manner worthy of the call with which you've been called? There's been a great and wonderful and needed resurgence in, in, in recent years to emphasize the grace of God. And we have gotten so focused on the grace of God, which is right, we ought to focus on the grace of God, that we have forgotten that the grace of God actually brings 
great change in the lives of those who experience the grace of God. His grace doesn't just amaze us. It changes us. That's actually what Paul says after he says we've been saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Then he says, we were created in Christ Jesus through this grace so that we would walk in good works. Now, that's important for every Christian, isn't it? There's not a Christian alive today that can say, well, I don't really need to think about that. Yes, you do, because it's for all of us. But it seems to me, and I'm venturing to say, that it is especially important for those who are going to plant their church in Bargersville. Okay, this new work, this kind of head of the spear in a new place to plant a church, that core group must be committed to walking in a way that testifies to their salvation, that will amplify their gospel witness and not silence it. Only recently I heard the very sad story of a church planter whose way of life silenced his gospel witness. He did not walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a pattern of life, okay? Bargersville, as well as the south side of Indianapolis, needs churches full of Christians who are committed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. They do not need churches that simply will talk in a Christian way, but those who will walk in a Christian way. And maybe you remember the days when you were not a Christian, and you remember being around those who would tell you all manner of things about morality and all these things and then seem to live out the other side of their mouth. And you thought, why should I listen to them? But somewhere along the way, God's grace got a hold of you, and now we're saying, why should they listen to me? Does my life amplify the gospel? Or does it silence it? The walk is required. I urge you to walk. The second thing is that this walk is in relationship with others. It's in relationship with others. Now, many of us grew up thinking about our walk with Christ. Like, for years and years and years, if you were part of Campus Crusade or some other campus ministry and people talked to you about your walk with Christ, you know how you, if they said, how's your walk going? You would fundamentally answer in individual ways, right? personal ways, private ways. Maybe you would talk about your personal Bible reading and whether it was consistent or not. Maybe you would talk about your prayer life and whether you felt like you were really engaging with the Lord. Maybe you would talk about your personal experience in worship and whether, you know, you're being sincere in your praise or you're just going through the motions. Now, those are all good things to consider, but Paul doesn't describe our walk that way here. He describes our walk in terms of relationships. So look at it. Having told the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he shows us what that means beginning in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's just think about each of those 
four things briefly. First, humility. Humility. One mark of the walk that is worthy of the call of God to salvation is humility. It is thinking of others more than ourselves. It is certainly thinking of God as all in all and me as just the beneficiary of His grace. It is seeing me for who I really am. It is not pounding away at me. It is just seeing me as I really am, as a fallible sinner in need of the grace of God daily. Now, in that day, I mean, today people kind of love humility. And, I mean, we love humility in society. We love it in leaders, right? We love it in when people talk about athletes. We love seeing humility in a friend. But in Paul's day, humility was not something you wanted to mark your life. This kind of lowliness, this kind of, uh, of not thinking much of yourself and thinking more of others, that was, that was actually a sign of weakness. But Paul says it's a sign of Christ-likeness. And then gentleness. So humility, gentleness. Gentleness takes the other person into consideration before we speak or act. So consider these examples. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says that we are to restore those who are trapped in sin. We are to seek to help restore them, and we are to do it with gentleness. We're not to be harsh with them. We're not to rub sin and people's sin in their faces. We're not to kick people when they're down. We're to be tender. We're to be gentle. Just remember the image of Jesus looking at the poor woman who's caught in the act of adultery. His tenderness is so clear there. The other places in second, that I'd bring up is in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says that Timothy should correct his opponents with gentleness. Now, why is that? Why would he say that? Well, you don't have to go any farther than your Facebook account to get an answer for that question, do you? Let me just ask you, how many times have you seen an opponent, no matter what the issue is, how many times have you seen an opponent suddenly change their mind because you yelled at them and you were harsh with them and you really beat them over the head. My guess is you've never seen that actually. This is the way of tyrannical dictators. This is not the way of Christ. Name calling and whatnot. Be gentle because he says correct them with gentleness and God may set them free from the lie that they're trapped in. Isn't that what you want to see? Well, gentleness better be part of it. Taking the other person into consideration. Humility and gentleness, both, by the way, words that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew 11 when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The lowly there is the humility word here. So he, he could have said, it could have been written in English just as easily, I am gentle and humble in heart. And then patience. Now older translations say long-suffering, and that gets to the idea. It's the idea, Paul says, of bearing with one another. That's the idea. 
Things aren't exactly like I'd like them to be in you. I mean, this is not in situation. This is like in you. Things, and you look at me and you say, things are not the way I'd like them to be in you either, Toby. Well, that's, that's exactly what Paul's, Paul would tell you and Paul would tell me. Bear with one another. Bear with those faults. Bear with those shortcomings. Bear with those quirks, whatever they may be. And that to do it in love. I am being patient, but you better hurry up and change. That's precisely what Paul is not saying. Because actually love is patient, according to 1 Corinthians. We would do well to remember the great patience that Jesus has shown us. How he bears with us in love. How we fall short continually. And he bears with us. He doesn't cast us aside. He's not sitting there tapping his foot waiting for you. He pleads and he woos and he is patient. And that should make us want to be patient and be motivated so that we can be like our Lord Jesus. The fourth thing he says is there in verse 3. It's an eagerness to maintain unity. Fight to stay together, in other words. Now, of course, some will say that no matter what you have to sacrifice, unity is the all-important thing that should mark a church. Even if you have to sacrifice some of your doctrine so that, so that you can be together. Well, for Paul, he would never say that. In fact, he tells Titus that once you've warned a divisive person a couple of times, you should have nothing to do with them. Paul would never tell us that it is unity at any cost. There is a cost, but it is a personal one. I sacrifice my personal preferences in order for us to stay together. So those four things, that's a very fast way to look at that. But humility, gentleness, patience, and an eagerness for unity. You know what they all have in common? This is the point. You can't do them by yourself. You cannot fully and truly display and obey these things all by yourself. I will tell you that when I was a single man... I really felt like I was not that selfish. And so long as I stayed single, my delusion stayed intact. Until this sinner said, I do. And then just being put into the circumstance of marriage, the Lord graciously revealed, Toby, you're selfish. It's in relationship with others that these things are meant to be lived. You, you can't really consider others more important than yourselves in a kind of theoretical, I lock myself away in my closet with my Bible kind of way. You must actually be in relationship with them. You can't be gentle with other people from there. You must be present. You can't be patient with peop without people to test your patience. You can't. Look, I always have unity with myself. All right? But genuine unity means there's more than one person in the room. And we're fighting to stay together in this faith for this Savior. We have to do it together. 
I mean, we may read our Bible consistently, we may pray with passion, we may attend church services, we may carry out many personal spiritual disciplines, we may even fast or journal or any kind of things, but without humility, without gentleness, without patience, without an eagerness for unity in real relationships, our walk with Christ does not reflect our salvation or our Savior. Now, that's good for all of us to remember, isn't it? I would say again, it's particularly important in a church plant. Let me just, let me tell you why. In a congregation of this size, you know what you can do? You can just about get away with not having to be face-to-face with people you struggle with. Right? I mean, that's why you people are sitting on this side of the auditorium, right? Because all these people over here. And in case you want, that's why they're sitting over there too. You can decide to take a different hallway. You can sit in a different area. In churches where you have multiple services, you can decide, I'm going to go to a different service. At a certain, at a congregation this size, it's very easy not to deal with this, but when there's like 20 of us in a room, You can't get away from each other. You can't pretend like you're patient and gentle and humble and eager for unity and escape it. It just comes right to the forefront. So we have to be committed to walking with Christ in relationships. It is so important for the health of Gray Road Baptist Church that we walk in these kinds of relationships. And it is so important for those of you who will go to Bargersville to plant this church. Because you can't walk in a manner worthy of Christ without these things. So it's required by God. It's in relationship with others. And third, it is <clears throat> the walk is our response to salvation. Our response to salvation. Just notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 1. By the way, I didn't read verses 4 to 6 there in talking about unity, but if you want to know why unity, it's because of all the ones in verses 4 to 6. One body, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Because we don't have different Christian faiths, so we fight for unity. But this walk is a response to the salvation that God has given. Look at verse 1, and you will find... The word that tells us this is a response to salvation. Paul begins, if you're looking at the ESV in uh, our, or our church Bible, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I therefore. Now the word therefore means that what I am about to tell you is built on something I've already said. It, it's bringing... It's bringing everything that came before it, something that came before it, to a logical conclusion. Based on this, therefore, that. And this walk that Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, doesn't come out of nowhere. It is the logical response to actually everything that he has said in chapters 1 to 3. This is the, this is the hinge of the door in this uh, letter. 
We are hinging from chapters 1 to 3 to chapters 4 to 6. If you just read chapters 1 to 3 and you walk away from it and you've never read Ephesians before, you have one idea of what Paul is doing. If you only read chapters 4 to 6, you have a different idea, but this therefore is the hinge that connects them both. It puts them together. Now, time forbids going through all of these first three chapters, but in them we see the glory and the wonder of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a flavor for it. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And then, he, and then Paul tells us what that means. God chose us. God loves us. God adopts us. God forgives our sin through Christ's death. God lavishes His grace on us. God gives us His Spirit. God guarantees our inheritance in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 18, God gives us hope. Chapter 2, verse 5, God gives us spiritual life. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, God graciously saves us. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, God brings us all into one family that spans across every nation. Chapter 3, God puts us on display as a demonstration of His wisdom and power to the universe and to all who would ever oppose Him. Therefore, walk. Friends, in chapters 1 to 3, God is at work. The main character is God. God initiates salvation. God takes the first step. God accomplishes that salvation. God applies that salvation to our lives. When we sit around and think about our salvation, we praise who? God. Why? Because He has done it all. It's often said, and I find this interesting, it's often said that chapters 1 to 3 are there to tell us who we are in Christ. I do not believe that is accurate. I believe it is more accurate to say chapters 1 to 3 are there to tell us what God has done for us in Christ. The people, the one in the forefront in chapters 1 to 3 is not me. It's God. God does all of this. God has saved you. And it's on the basis of all that God has done for us in Christ that Paul says, therefore, I urge you to walk. And to walk in a way that it's clear that God has, in fact, done all of this for you. Friends, this is where so many get the Christian message wrong. They reverse what Paul says. As it were, they take chapters 4 to 6 about how to live and put them first. And they put the therefore in the wrong place. So, what I mean is, this is what many people think the Christian message is, okay? I turn over a new leaf. I clean up my act. I straighten out my life. I stop lying. I stop stealing. I stop getting drunk. I start being kind. I start walking in the light. I get my family in order. I get my life in order, and so on and so on. I do all that. Therefore, God blesses me. Therefore, God forgives me. Therefore, God brings me into His family. You see what I'm saying? 
This is what people do. They take chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians, and they put it way up front. And they say, if you do all this, you do all this, therefore, God blesses you with every blessing in, in the heavenly places. But friends, Paul didn't put his words in the wrong place. Paul got the order right. We get the order wrong. Look at what God has done in Christ. Therefore, walk. God does it all. Yes, walking in a new way of life is required but it is a response to salvation. It is not a prerequisite to salvation. God has done all the work. Jesus lives a life of perfect righteousness, and then He dies for us, suffering the consequences of our sin, facing the wrath of God that we deserve to save us. And our first response is to repent and believe, to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, as it were, to open the hand that clings so tightly to sin and to my way so that God will take it and forgive it and replace it with the gift of His glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. You and I are all qualified to receive this salvation. Not because of the lives we've lived that are so great, but because we are all sinners. Because we've all clung to sin. And God calls us to open our hand, and anyone who will, anyone who will come with an open hand of faith will be saved. How are your hands? Are you clinging to sin? Would you open your hand? Are you going to cling to your own way? You're going to cling to the fact that you know better than God? You're going to cling to the fact that you could run the universe better than Him because your ideas are better than His? You'll never let go thinking that. You'll never be saved thinking that. You think you are a better ruler of your life than God? Well, you may live that way, but you'll never, never be right with God thinking that way. God isn't sitting in heaven wondering if someone will convince Him to operate His universe differently. God has said, this is what I've done for you. Open your hand and receive it. Because if you would, your sin would be forgiven you. And you'd be made right with God. And that first response of repentance and faith will set you on a path of response for the rest of your life. Walking a new walk. Walking with Christ. Walking in relationship with others in the church. And with God's help, by God's Spirit, walking in a manner worthy of that salvation, a walk marked by peace and joy, even through the sorrows of life. Even as Gary prayed this morning, and I thought about 
so many of you who are connected to all these situations. I just, I was overwhelmed by encouragement at how I have seen you walk through these things, looking to Jesus. And even those of you who weren't on the list, but I know what you're walking through, to see you walk with Christ through it. It's a walk that lasts your whole life, and it's a walk whose last step will be into the presence of the Lord. That's a walk we all want to take. One paraphrase puts this this way, that Paul says, I want you to get out there and walk on the road God God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences, quick at mending fences. You are all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. May God help us to do just that. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we are humbled as we hear your word, as it searches our hearts and our lives, as you shine the spotlight of your truth on us, and we ask, God, that you would forgive us for the times when we have compartmentalized our faith, when we've just said that just has to do with church on Sunday and a quiet time through the week, and we haven't seen our Christian life the way you say it is, as all-encompassing as something that happens day by day, as something that affects our thoughts and our words and our motivations and our, the way we suffer and all of these things. Forgive us for failing to walk. And God, renew our strength by Your Spirit that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which You have been called. To walk in response to what You have done for us in Christ. To walk in relationship with others. To walk because you require it. We pray, God, that you will be glorified as you apply these words to our hearts. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Let's stand for just a moment, and we're going to sing together. One way to actually put the two hinges of this, uh, this whole letter together,